Hey listeners, today's episode includes discussion of child abuse and domestic violence. We wanted to notify listeners who may experience trauma related to these topics ahead of the episode. Resources are listed in the description for today's episode. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. I believe in us. I believe in us too. I believe in you and me. <laughs> Remember that song? I don't think I do. Yes, it's like Whitney Houston. It's uh, you, and I believe in miracles. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how it sounds? Yeah. Wasn't it the Prince of me? <laughs> That's exactly how it sounds. As a matter of fact, I actually just played a clip, so I don't even know if we have the legal... Oh, Can yeah, we play we're probably going to get sued, because I think that actually was Whitney Houston's voice. It was. I actually just played a clip. I have a hit clip. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's what I held up to the, the microphone just now. I don't remember that song, I don't think. Yes, you do. I believe in miracles. <laughs> I believe in you and me. The only I believe in miracles <laughs> is that song from like the 60s or 70s. I believe in miracles. Way from. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not. You know it. I and mean, as soon as you hear it, you're going to be like. Embarrassed. Yeah, because your your queer card is going to get taken away. Okay. That's how it works. You don't know a Whitney Houston song? A bunch of West Hollywood gays are going to come around and just attack you. And they're going to re- remove my card? Yeah, they're going to remove your card. <laughs> I saw there was a a meme on, it was on the internet, so in my mind it's a meme, Uh of somebody, it literally is a card with like a rainbow, like a credit card with a rainbow across the top of it, and it just says, I'm gay, the holder of this card is gay, and then it says, officially gay, so listen to me, please. (laughs) I just love the idea of of the the cards being a thing. That's so perfect. As a matter of fact, I want to start saying that when I introduce myself to people, Um, I'm I'm officially gay, so please listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think also it would be perfect if it just said the LGBTQ community, like Britney Spears, when she said at the LGBTQ community. Like, oh, yeah. All in, a, in a home together. <laughs> oh, Britney. <sighs> yeah. What's new? You know, just another week down. Um, mm-hmm. We have, I have <laughs> been watching a lot of uh, true crimey type stuff, which I feel like is sort of relative. I just, uh, so it's so funny because you know how there's the new Unsolved Mysteries? Yeah. I didn't realize there was a new set of the new Unsolved Mysteries. I thought it was just still the original set. And so I was like, why is everybody suddenly talking about it? It's been out for months. Right. Well, there's more. There's more. Yeah. See, because that's why I think I was confused about me not being done yet. Because oh, I, yeah. I also didn't realize they had added to it. I'm just late to the, a little late to the game. So... It showed to me that we weren't done, but we were, in fact, done with season one. We were just in okay. season two, two, episode one yeah. or whatever. But yeah, we watched, that's what we watched this week. We watched an episode of that Unsolved Mysteries, and then that prompted us to go back to the original again. Oh my God. <laughs> so we watched a couple of the original Robert Stack episodes over on Hulu. And I watched, even though I've seen a million things on Jodie Arias at this point, Davey oh, some, yeah. somehow has not seen an actual detailed thing on Jodi Arias before. He's just known of the case. Is she so, the one who killed her boyfriend yeah. and then took a bunch of photos of it? Yes. Okay, weird. Yeah, yeah, really weird. And so we watched, it's the Jodi Arias story, and it's not Dirty Little Secret. 
<laughs> but I will say in the it's a three part. I think it's the this American not this American Life. It's um an American Crime or something like that. It's an ID Channel production. Original. Yeah, and so it's three episodes long, and we watched all of it. And I've I've seen a million things on the Jodi Arias case, and even in this, I found out some new things. Have you finished uh, the Haunting of Bly Manor yet? No, we haven't. We actually, uh. I'm finding it a little harder to get into than the first season, even though I'm still interested. It's definitely not as spooky as the first season. It's, it's just, not, it's not horror. It's like, it's actually just like a ghost story. Which, you know, is fine with me because I, you know, I like that kind of stuff. Yeah. But my, my issue with it so far, like we're still at the season, the season, the episode two mark. And I, oh, yeah. Just don't feel like the storytelling is quite as good, like huh, well done okay. so far, because oh. I'm just very confused by a lot of the details right now. And yeah, I'm hoping I mean, that it's just like they're burying the lead and, you know, things get yeah. revealed, whatever. But it's just a little bit too like, why are you like we were talking about the other day? Like, why are you having such a strong reaction to that? And yeah. why am I seeing these mysterious figures? Am I supposed to be seeing them? Are they hidden like last season? So we watched Death Becomes Her the other day. <gasps> oh, my God. So good, well, right? Does it hold up? Y- yes, for the most okay. part. Davy's never seen it before, God, so he loved Davey. it. I know, I know. What about you? What's been What's been going on in your world, either on the screen or off? <laughs> I well, I finished Bly Manor, and I wanted to talk about it, so I oh, need you to finish that. I'm sorry. Um, and then I watched the first episode of the Unsolved Mysteries, the new batch. Yeah, I, how did it, you like it? Was, it? Have you seen it? It's the one with the like White House aide guy who shows up in a landfill. Oh, no, I don't think I've seen... Maybe we're not in the season. Maybe we're just about to start season two. Okay, well, I won't say anything then. But okay. You find that out within 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah, no, you did... Episode, yeah. So. <laughs> I didn't anyway. think an Unsolved Mysteries case was going to be about, like, you know, you know who who took the money from the till at the Red Robin. Yeah, true. <laughs> Fair. Although there's that fucking episode about aliens that I just skipped immediately. Oh, uh, I know you hate alien stuff. I liked that episode, but it definitely was less compelling. Do you think ghosts are real (laughs) you were you nervous to ask me that question (laughs) and i want you to know you can ask me anything (laughs) i just okay so here's the thing i am certain that there's life out there and and that here on earth we're not the only life in the universe but so for a minute but i was literally about to say like i think ghosts are more real than aliens and then i was like well that's kind of stupid but (laughs) i think that there is a greater likelihood of in our lifetime, evidence of alien life, us discovering it, than than evidence of alien or of ghosts. Of ghosts, but okay. I do, I do believe in ghosts. I do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I believe in ev- I don't believe in the majority of ghost stories I hear on the internet and stuff like that. Yeah, but um, I've had some ghost stories in my family that I think are true. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have some ghost stories in my family too. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like it's we know so little about death and the afterlife and and what happens. It would be, in my opinion, and no offense to you, <laughs> I think it would be arrogant <laughs> to say that we know definitively if there's any sort of like, you know, other dimension, other plane of existence, and yeah, what whatnot. Hey, listen, if you're a listener and you have a good ghost story, email it to us at rippedheadlinespod at gmail dot com. Yes, please do. I would like to hear it. Yes, but if you're going to send us some sort of like EMF or whatever recording of you know some nonsense, you could just keep that to yourself. Send that to Chills, uh, Chills YouTube channel. (laughs) 
<laughs> is that the like 10 spookiest yeah things that's our okay. favorite youtube channel to watch when we because you just always know it's going to be preposterous and okay. and he's going to be doing it in this strange affected voice that is it's meant to be taken seriously but it's ridiculous it's ridiculous every once in a while though like every once in a while one of his top 10 videos will have like a really good one in it and you're like oh mm-hmm. my god what was that like what the hell was that thing but you know <laughs> It's a gem. It's you never know what you're gonna get. It's a mixed bag. <laughs> so welcome to Rick from the Headlines. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is us. Here we are. This is we us. We are Mandy a Moore. <laughs> fact and fiction podcast that recaps Law and Order episodes and the true crimes inspired by the show. I'm N, and that is Matt. Hey. And you are the episode recapper today. I am, which was delightful for me because I really liked this episode. Uh, I did not like this episode. <laughs> oh, no. I thought the... Let, let me say why I liked the episode was I thought it was performed a lot better than most of yeah. the other ones by the actors. I particularly liked the second half of the episode versus the first half. Okay. And I just like some of the characters in this episode a lot. I think... Here's the thing. I think Chris Noth had to display a range of emotion in this episode, and he did not do that successfully. I, I agree. A bat. I like if if this were an audition tape, I would not hire him. I don't know <laughs> if this was an audition tape for this particular part. Maybe I would hire him because yeah, I've I would like to believe based on like the things I see about Chris Noth in in general currently yeah. and things that he kind of stands for and such. I would like to believe that this is partly on the writer's fault. <laughs> Okay. Because <laughs> I just feel like he is supposed to be unlikable. I, For some reason, I really think that we're really supposed to find him very unlikable right now. Okay. I'll, I'll accept that because if that's what they're aiming for, they are hitting the nail on the head. Because he's really disgusting in this episode. I mean, he's uh, honestly like... You'll 99. see how I feel about it. Okay, great. All right. <laughs> for sure. There's like a part I really just like have to have a dead stop and... <laughs> Yeah. Should we get into it? Let's do it. All right. So here we are. Season one, episode nine. This episode is called Indifference. I just had a moment of fear that I was going to say that title and you were going to be like, no, it's not. I did a different episode. (laughs) Honestly, one of my greatest fears is that we show up to record and something has happened with like the numbering of the episodes and we'll have each watched something different and reported on the wrong crime or something. I know. If that ever happens, what do you think we should do? Should we just plow ahead and do the mismatch? Uh, I think <laughs> Or we just should. re-record another day? <laughs> I think we should re-record another day and go, okay, well, you research this crime, I'll watch that episode, and now we'll have two episodes to record. Well, that's not nearly as fun. <laughs> <laughs> should we make it like a, a guessing game, a mystery? Yeah, we'll make a, it'll be our uh, secret mystery episode. <laughs> dirty, little <secret. laughs> dirty little secret. Oh, that's what I wanted to say. They did use the phrase "dirty little secret" a lot in the Jody Arias thing we watched. Speaking While of which, it wasn't Jody Arias' "dirty little secret," I swear I heard it said in the courtroom like <laughs> twelve times. <laughs> did you? You saw that you heard the surprise at the end of last week's episode. <laughs> I did. I loved it. I loved it so much. If you are a person who didn't listen to the end of last week's episode, go back and listen to the end of it because there's a surprise there. Yes. And if you want to know what the surprise is after you hear it, A, go back to the beginning of the episode. We talk about what it is during the little like, you know, five minute. I don't even know how long it was when we're sort of winding up like now. Yeah. (laughs) And if you listen to it at all, I 
I can't recommend enough. And has recommended it, and now I'm I'm hooked. I'm like seven or eight episodes in. Hey Riddle Riddle, the podcast is just hilarious. I it's just really can't funny. say it enough. I'm so glad you introduced me to it. Yay! I'm so happy. Oh, I would it's say hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Okay, never mind. Go ahead. What were you gonna say? Well, okay. <laughs> I was gonna say so they're improv comics, and sometimes like improv comedy. If you're really good at it, it's funny. And then, like, with any comedy, you're taking chances and you're putting things out there. And sometimes they kind of fall a little flat. And so there are definitely moments like that where they're, like, riffing on each other. And it's like, well, that wasn't, like, hilarious. But, you know. Yeah. I'm going to cut this out. (laughs) uh, Well, I I just think I kind of like that about it, though. Because it's it normalizes the feel. Sometimes in general, and I've talked about this with people before, it's hard for people sometimes to when they're around a bunch of people who are more gregarious than them sometimes it's hard for people to like break into the fold does that make sense because they don't want to make a joke that they think is funny but like in this other group everyone's going to kind of look at them and be like uh that was lame yeah so i think when you when you see comedy like that and it's done well and you know there are those like little bits that they do that just kind of like die and they move on Mm -hmm. um yeah i love that because it's not it it destigmatizes the the shame of like making a joke that doesn't land like big deal true. you know what i mean like it made yeah. me it made me feel more confident doing podcasting stuff oh so i yeah. kind of like that about that it, it's big and i think it's only done successfully because they are all very very funny i don't know their other work at all off the top of my head i don't even know what they look like i really should look up their <laughs> who they who the people are behind the voices but then it kind of like is weird to do that with podcasting you know well, it's so funny. I just remember when I was listening to My Favorite Murder, because that was one of the first podcasts that I got turned on to, thanks to you. Yeah. Uh, I just remember having such a clear picture in my head of what they both looked like. And then I was like, I like came across a, an interview or something was recommended on YouTube. And I was like, that is 0% what I thought they looked like. Uh, totally. So totally. It's, just, it's so funny. I, I wonder what people think we look like. I was just thinking that too, because I... I don't know what my voice (laughs) presents as. Probably like a... I'm not even going to get into it. But yeah, yeah, I had the same reaction when I first started listening to My Favorite Murder. It was the first podcast I got into as well. And Mm -hmm. the first... I had an image of them in my mind, of course. And then the first uh, representation I saw of them was just an image. So I didn't hear them talking. And I immediately ascribed the wrong voice to the wrong person when I saw the picture of them. I was like, oh, that's Georgia, that's Karen. And I was totally shocked when i saw them moving and talking yeah (laughs) it wasn't like that i was like i wonder if people think we sound at all alike because it's so funny on hey riddle riddle the uh, episode i was listening to a couple days ago they were talking on their podcast about how people confuse jpc and adults voices and to me they sound nothing alike and it's so easy to distinguish but it was really funny because when i first started listening to my favorite murder I could not tell them apart. It took me probably like 40 episodes before I, I could go, this is huh. Karen, this is Georgia. It was really hard to distinguish them. Interesting. I always could tell the two voices apart, but I couldn't always tell who was who was talking at first. But yeah, got it. it out yeah. there, if you're listening and you don't actually know us in real life, yeah. <laughs> imagine it's just our friends, right. all two of you. Um, if you're listening... Yeah, tell us what you think. Send us uh, pictures of what you think we look like. Oh, my God. If you are a cartoonist <laughs> or a caricaturist and you want to uh, imagine what we look like, please send that our way. Here, And we'll put it on our uh, Instagram. Yeah. Which is very easy to find us off of that Instagram. <laughs> Correct. True. <laughs> Good point. Oh, well. Anyway, in any event, 
Speaking of the title of this episode being indifference, yeah, <laughs> how everyone's feeling about this conversation. <laughs> so, all right. So we begin the episode, and for once, we're not opening to like two cops Beat talking cops, yeah. about a, a related case. You know, we're <laughs> we're out of that zone for a little bit. Thank goodness. Yeah. We're in a classroom, and the little hobgoblins all look about six or seven. So, I guess that's like first grade, can second grade, yeah, first second grade, yeah. yeah. So um, I I don't know if we even get confirmation of exactly how old these children are later, but in any event, the teacher, Ms. Perez, is waking them all up from a nap, a little break, and she's saying, you know, time for cookies and milkshake. No, cookies and orange juice, because I commented. Are you sure? A hundred percent. I rewound it. No, it's orange juice. Oh, and my I was like, God. what a disgusting combination, cookies and Ew. orange juice. Okay, I was about to say, my school never gave us milkshakes. And Can you I'm imagine? Pissed. She made like 30 se- separate milkshakes. I was like, where's the blender? Yeah. <laughs> where the hell is the blender? Is this like one of those infomercials where they're making it there, like the late night infomercials, but someone off camera has made like she, a huge batch? <laughs> she has like a Nutribullet and she's just doing one at a time. For the low, low price. <laughs> Six payments. It's ridiculous. Okay, that's even worse. Orange juice and cookies. I know. Unless it was like a citrus-based cookie, I, I like. Oh yeah, I right. immediately went to like Oreos and Oreos yeah. and orange juice. Sounds like the worst thing I've ever heard of. Oh, I want to. It's like I'd rather brush my teeth and put orange juice in my mouth. I'd rather brush my teeth with orange juice. Yes. Oh God. Oh, they should have arrested her. <laughs> <laughs> Change the whole case. All right, that's even worse. I'm so I'm I'm thrown off. I'm flabbergasted. In that case, I'm glad my school didn't do this. So she's you know getting everybody up. They're all running up to get their crap. And <laughs> little Deirdre or uh, Dee Dee, as she's referred to for the most of the episode, isn't getting up. So Ms. Perez goes over to her and sort of gently like pushes her hair from her face, like oh hey. And the little girl mutters, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry." And like the voice, like the little kid from Are You Afraid of the Dark? I'm yes. cold. And it's revealed that she has blood all over her neck. And it's jarring, but it's really strange the way it was done, I feel like. Because yeah. she says, I'm sorry, but her mouth doesn't move. Yeah. And there's just blood sort of like haphazardly like thrown on her neck. Like, yeah. I feel like this scene was put in and they were they really weren't sure if she was going to be dead or alive. So they're like, all right, let's bring this kid in. Tell her to just sleep on the desk. And someone just walked in with like a paintbrush with red on it and was like, uh, boop, boop, on, boop, boop, on the boop. neck, I guess. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> it was really strange. And then they just figured it out in post. So Grievy and Logan are on the scene pretty quickly and she's being taken out in a stretcher. Ms. Perez is saying in the hallway, sort of to no one in particular, that she knew this would happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will say that this actress is serving it up. There is an intensity to this person. Her voice, her severe sort of gaze, I was just ready for her to eviscerate anyone in her path. I was so ready. But, you know. she doesn't. She doesn't get the chance because no. she. they ask her, like, what happened? And she says it was an accident. And she says it in a sort of, like, hard-to-read tone. You know, like, it was an yeah. accident. And then Principal, who is also a doctor, uh, Babcop, ba- Babcock. I'm going to say that a million times wrong in this episode. Principal Bad... Principal Babadook. I keep wanting to say Babadook. I almost want to say Bad Cop. Bad Cop? Yeah. Principal Good Cop is uh, on vacation for the day, so today we're uh, being visited by Principal Bad Cop. Exactly. Principal Good Cop has been on vacation for many, many episodes. So, uh, Principal Bad Babcock, 
yes, comes out of nowhere and he interrupts and he's like, uh, listen, listen, quiet down. He's clearly trying to manage the situation. And he says that, you know, this, this teacher's got a <laughs> wild imagination. A white man is talking. <laughs> exactly. He comes through. He basically looks like Radigan from like the great mouse detective. Yes. Like this. So she almost gets out. She was assaulted by her, but he, before he stops her and is like, Hey, 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 she's pretty trigger happy. Don't say things to the police. Keep your mouth quiet, little lady. As she kind of like looks at him and storms off. Grievy goes off um, with him and says, hey, okay, listen, you know, I'm with you. Let's go get some info on the child. And then Logan sneaks off to the classroom to figure out what's going on. And he literally says to her, what the hell's going on? <laughs> In front of a classroom of children. Their interaction is very weird to me. It's so weird. Because she's like, it's almost like they're... Being like, okay, he's a man of the people. He's going to go in here and reason with her like person to person and be like less right. official. And she's just going to automatically sense this about him, which I guess she does because she's like, what does she say? Oh, yeah. She says that uh, she had told Babcock that she suspected something going on with Dee Dee. And he goes, and he shined on you, which I had to look up. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> and it means to deceive, especially in order to deflect responsibility. Is it okay. shined you on? Shined you on. Yeah. Okay. My dad uses that phrase sometimes. I've never heard that before. Maybe I have on like a like Marx Brothers movie. <laughs> I was going to say like a 1940s radio program. Ba-da, ba-da, ba-da. <laughs> yeah. So the credits roll right after this and everyone has an appropriate amount of time to like go grab a snack or mow the lawn, learn a new language, a new skill. Oh, because it's the title <laughs> sequence. Okay, okay, okay. While I was watching it, I had to look up how long it was because I was like... This is still going. Is it, it 23 is f- minutes? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, it's a full, like, 90-second song. So it's, like, half the length of an actual song. It is. It would so absolutely long. be long enough for radio. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it would never happen today because, you know, people want to make profits and you're not making money on title sequences. So, you know, credits have rolled. We're back. And we are at the apartment building that Dee Dee's family lives in. And the detectives knock on the door to find Ellen Burstyn's character from Requiem for a Dream inside. <laughs> uh, I don't know that reference, but <gasps> I know I can imagine what you're referencing because it's a very uh, kind of out of touch with reality loopy sort of character oh my god you have to i don't know if you like that kind of movie it's very upsetting kind of to watch it's very dramatic but it's a really really great movie one of my favorites i I like dramatic upsetting movies oh it's great it's really really it's psychological it's got a lot to do about like drugs and stuff like that i don't know how it holds up but i've always always loved it and ellen burston's she almost won the oscar i think that year for her her portrayal so she was robbed i think she was robbed you know who i think beat her that year if i'm not mistaken Gwyneth Paltrow for Shakespeare in Love. Are you serious? Can we not? That's a goop. Uh, That's the goop of the season. So, (laughs) oh, hi, Neville. Sorry, Neville just came downstairs. Oh, little buddy. How's he feeling? He's not been feeling good. Okay, so it's a woman who looks like she's had some sort of psychotic break. She's manic looking at the door she leaves the chain on and she's just talking to them like through this little crack uh she's clearly struggling with some sort of mental health issue yeah really unfocused eyes yeah glossy look and she's kind of like looking past them not quite at them she's not just a delay in her responses if they're coming at all so there's clearly something a little off about her and she's she's struggling with something and logan addresses this by saying 
What are you brain dead yourself? Yeah, that was cute. <laughs> yeah, real nice. So um, this this episode <laughs> handles mental health issues really, really delicately really well. through this yeah. part. I mean, with just perfect precision, like they usually do all sensitive topics. Exactly. So they're telling her, you know, listen, your kid might not survive. And she reacts by saying that maybe she was holding it when she fell. Holding it. Yeah. Yeesh. And uh, she says she's alone in there. Her husband's out of town. And they, they really better leave her alone. So she kind of slams the door in their face. And they're they're kind of pissed off because they've, they've hit a dead end. And they're emblazoned about this because it's about a child. The doctor in the next scene says that it's likely that there's damage to the brain stem. But they need more results. And... Grievy's, I guess, playing devil's advocate and hoping for a good answer to this. And it's like, could it have been a fall? Mm-hmm. And she says, yeah, from a third story window, maybe. Okay. <laughs> Let me tell I you. I think <laughs> that would be worse, personally. I think that would result in, like, you know, a brain, know, death. A head exploding. Instant death. I yeah. From a for small child. Broke, ever shattering every bone in the body. So, you know, I know that they're a little sassy in these hospitals so far, but she could have done a little better. Next, we are at Rudy Skelza's apartment. <laughs> um, he, he's That's apparently like a Bond villain name. He might as well be, honestly. When he, he's he's definitely a character. Yeah, he is right across the street from Dee Dee's apartment. Kind of interesting that they chose to go there, but it's a smart move. I'm glad they didn't have to go back to the station to get told to go uh, canvas the area. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so he has his place decorated like it's a slightly upscale thrift shop. Yes, I think there's, there's like even... uh, anima- uh, animation figures. Uh, what are the things I'm action, action figures? figures? Yeah, <laughs> Anima- there's, there's like animation a bunch figures. of like shelves with action figures. Yes, there's a bunch of animation figures. <laughs> there's a bunch of animated gifts on the wall. <laughs> Wacko, Yakko, and Dot are actually in the scene. <laughs> I wish he's like the quality of actor from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and they told him like be the countercultury. Like, a little bit like, whoa, man, kind of character. Exactly. (laughs) So they're asking him, you know, have you ever noticed anything? And he's like, do I look like a peeper? And Logan's like, "Uh, yeah. Yeah. And they're not wrong. So he's like, well, uh, I noticed that their blinds are always closed. So dead end. (laughs) Back at the school, Principal Babacock. Principal Babadook. Principal Babadook says, ah! (laughs) Why can't you be normal? So Principal Babcock tells them that Mrs. Perez or Ms. Perez's excitability is a cultural thing. Yikes. Yikes. A few more he moments like blames of that. it on her being Puerto Rican, right? Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. said it earlier, like she's excitable and, you know, she's female and she's Puerto Rican. Oh, yeah. So. And I think he even called her like fiery or something. Yes, was, exactly. Yeah. He's mentioned it several times. He's, he's a pig. And so he's a total piece of work. He tells them that she didn't follow protocol. She really should have just reported it to the nurse and gone through this channel, which goes to this channel, yada, yada. And Logan says, uh, by that- Calling oh. the police on a child that has a head injury and won't wake up. Right. How dare she call the police? Right. A, a child in the classroom is covered in blood and speaking without moving her mouth. Right. <laughs> Throwing her voice somehow. Speaking of ghost stories. <laughs> I'm cold. The girl covered in blood who doesn't open her mouth to speak. <laughs> I didn't like that orange juice. Maybe that's what. Maybe she was just playing dead to get out of that snack. Ugh, gross. So he's claiming that, you know, they didn't go through the right channels and this is overreacting. And Logan is like, listen, why don't you stop trying to cover your ass? And it's a total like good cap, good cop, bad cop situation. So there's this weird situation where it looks 
as though for a second Grievy is like calming Logan down, but then he goes in for the kill and he's like, listen, you know, you better talk to us or we're going to come after you. Uh, and he, he makes a point to say that no matter who sees a child may be in danger, cultural or not, they better report it. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Grievy. This, for whatever reason, intimidates the doctor and he says that, you know, she had, she had, she had it coming. <laughs> Not a common. I mean, that's <laughs> more on that in a second. So he admits that, you know, he had been told by Ms. Perez several times in September that she had suspected that Dee Dee was being abused at home and that all he did was notify juvenile services and uh, he tried to be discreet. Grievy is pissed. Pissed. So they kind of storm out of the office and they're at juvenile services now. Evidently, the dress code of a juvenile services worker is to look like a fungus of some sort. Oh and my so... god, her haircut looked like the uh, haircut from Pen15. <laughs> oh, totally. She literally looked like if it had just been her head sticking out of the ground from behind, I would have thought it was a mushroom. <laughs> and like Princess Peach would have had to pluck her from the ground and she would have just yeah. started walking around waving her arms. <laughs> so oh, yeah. this mushroom lady comes over and she tells them there's an active file and they intend to look into it. And she's kind of like meek and, you know, not making eye contact and they're Logan particularly is getting pissed. Like, how many active files do you have? Are you really going to get to it? And she says that she's heard there's 100,000 in New York for this year alone. And then she shows them her computer screen and what appears to be the entrance to the Matrix on her monitor. Yes, yes. (laughs) And as it scrolls past a million things automatically with no press of a mouse, uh, she's like, we kind of have our hands full. And then they apologize and leave. So they figure out that Dee Dee's father is a therapist. And so they stop by where they believe he works. And we're treated to a scene from Designing Women. <laughs> Wait. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, This yes. woman in huge shoulder pads comes out. And she is totally a sugar baker. She goes, yes. who's in charge of this ape? <laughs> it's, to- it's great. And uh, she finds out that... You know, Grievy's like, hey, hey, you know, what's going on? We're the monkeys. We're the monkeys. People say we monkey around, but we're too busy being completely inappropriate <laughs> to track anybody down. <laughs> so they want to know what's going on. They think that the guy is supposed to work here. And she's like, no, sorry, Jacob used to work here, but not anymore. There was an instant. She can't really reveal anything. And Yeah, she says some weird line like, we've had some troubles. And, yeah, yes. <laughs> troubles. And she like sort of looks away suddenly yeah. and like uh plays with a nail she, file like, puts her hand uh, the back of her hand against her forehead yeah. as she like sort of faints a little bit Troubles. yes yes exactly her her hair doesn't move at all because it's so no. hairsprayed yeah and they're like all right well can you at least tell us where where he works now so she doesn't want to but as soon as they find out that it's, she finds out it's about the kid she's like okay um you know he does some consulting work i've heard at this place so they head over and they arrive and when they get to his office door we hear these like spice channel porny moaning sounds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they barge in and I'm really unclear of what he was supposed to be doing over this topless woman based yeah, on like I the positioning either. of their bot. It almost looked like he was like breastfeeding. It was so strange. Maybe he was snorting co- coke off her boob. Maybe unusual i mean i don't i don't do coke but if that's a common way to do it then you know maybe i'm out of touch <laughs> i have no idea <laughs> so he's like the, the the gentleman is the father of Dee. his name is jacob and he is a you know supposedly a therapist of some sort and he goes oh no, this is therapy this is therapy 
And Logan takes the vial that's in his hand. He takes a little lick and then makes these cartoon <laughs> eyes. Totally legit therapeutic work. Totally legit police work going on here. <laughs> also, yeah, like, I'm sorry. The f- I wouldn't go around licking random substances. I certainly would not. I wouldn't even open it. How about but don't even that- touch it? But also, is that part of police training to like, okay, officer, so that you can randomly lick things and know what they are, we're going to give you all a little bit of cocaine now. Like, <laughs> it's just one of the, like, how, what? Hi. Did they all just have like their, their day of training where they tasted random drugs so yes. they would know? I was just going to say, hi, everybody, this is week three of police academy <laughs> training, and we're going to start talking about some serious detective work, so we only have a select group of you to learn this skill. Today, we are going to be learning how to use the lick test. <laughs> the lick uh and someone's like what does lick stand for what's that acronym and they're like no, no. oh oh no 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 um i'm sorry i wasn't clear you're using your tongue that's inside of your mouth to lick things uh oh, evidence let's see. possible we've evidence got a, uh, we've got a full brick of cocaine here and uh go to town <laughs> go to town one of these items is a brick of cocaine one of these items is powdered sugar the other one is arsenic <laughs> all Good right luck. let the lick test begin <laughs> I'm glad Logan passed that lick test because he's able to identify this immediately as cocaine, as we can tell by his cartoon eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Jacob is, by the way, I, I, I noted this down and I'm the only one who cares, but Jacob is played by the actor David Groh, I think his name is pronounced. And I only recognized him and I had to look up who he was because did you ever watch Rhoda? Yeah. The Mary Tyler Moore spinoff? He yeah. is Rhoda's husband through the whole series, Joe. Oh, I, I like... I know that I watched Rhoda, yeah. and I remember it was never as good as Mary Tyler Moore, but it came on, like, afterwards. Yes. It, on, like, Nick at Night, so I would watch it sometimes. I loved I do- it, but it I, was like, never as I, vaguely remember it. Yeah. If you look up a picture of him, you're going to recognize him immediately, because I just kept looking at him, and I'm like, I know him from somewhere. Maybe he's just, like, a, you know, an extra actor on a lot of shows, and I think he might be, but... I felt like that about his wife in the show, and I looked her up, and she's been in a hundred thousand things, but oh. I, I don't think I've seen any of them. You actually have seen one of them, because I what? felt the same way, and well, she she's was- in, like, multiple episodes of Law & Order. Yeah, and we've watched one. Oh, we have? Yeah, and I don't remember who- her. Okay, so she was in episode six, which is everybody's favorite bag man, and that was- oh. You did the <gasps> recap the of wife. the episode. Her name is Allison. Is she the wife? Isn't she? I don't Isn't remember- Oh, I'll have to look it up. I'm yeah, gonna look it up. I was going to look it up, but I was uh, like, uh, this is too much. I was going down a, like a deep dive with some of these <laughs> actors. And I had already looked at like, you probably looked her up and saw the same list I've seen. And it was pretty daunting. Really long. Like she's yeah. had a very long career. She's had awards, like an Obie award or something. I don't know. So she, she's been, she was Alice in Everybody's Favorite Bagman, evidently. Um, she's <laughs> very good in this episode. Oh, yeah. She was the wife because it was Councilman Halsey. Oh, And she's okay. Alice Halsey. Yeah. So, you know, we've seen her. Yeah. Um, and she plays like four different people in this show. I can't. I know. I can't wait. I can't I wait to that. see who else she's going to be, how she evolves. Does she become a lawyer too? <laughs> uh, probably. She's probably a judge at some point. It's like the Pokemon evolution. Um, yeah. <laughs> her final form. <laughs> yeah. So we saw her as like Cleffa and now she's Clefairy. We just can't wait to see what Clefable is going to be. <laughs> the nerdiest person alive right now. So... Okay, so da, 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 da. we're back at the station, and Logan is now questioning the therapist. They brought him in, and it's a scene where we see Logan sort of being argumentative with him while Grievy and, and um, Cragen are talking outside the two-way mirror, and suddenly he suspect loses it, and he gets up, and he's being screamed at, and he says, I'm being sandbagged, I'm being railroaded, jackhammered, electric companyed, <laughs> the, whole, the whole spiel of every, you know, he's, he's really not having it. 
the conversation gets really, really weird. This is the weirdest conversation of the episode. I had a hard time following it. There are, there's a lot of strange dialogue in this episode. Right? It's so, he like sort of teeters between saying he, he's out of town a lot because his wife is super, he says he's out of town a lot because his wife is super jealous if he works late and thinks he could be with somebody else. Um, But then when he's questioned on it, he's like, whether he is unfaithful, I mean, we saw him doing something over a half-naked woman. He says mm-hmm. that, you know, no matter what you saw, that was uh, Reiki and therapy. And oh, yeah. he says that he sort of gets sle- kind of sleazy about how he's describing the girl and her legs, even though he was just claiming he wasn't doing anything salacious. It's really strange. And then he references a quote from somebody that I didn't even want to rewind and find out about, but about saying she was so attractive he wanted to hit her with a hammer. Yeah. Strange. Uh huh. He says it's a figure of speech. It is? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Where? don't you say that all the time? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's my favorite phrase. <laughs> it's very common. If I had a hammer, I would hit someone that was attractive. That's the yeah. original line for the song. Yeah. Anyway, they uh, they bring up Dee Dee, and he acts shocked that he is suddenly being accused of doing something. And I'm like, what did you think you were here for? But he, he shirks the blame and onto his wife and says, like, she's irrational. He's dealing with a challenging woman. And he's realized that suddenly that, oh, my God, this woman I'm describing that's irrational that could have harmed my daughter is with my son. And he's afraid of what she'll do. And he gets up, and there's this, like, scuffle in the room. And it's really strange because if you're afraid of what she's going to do to your kids— and you're always away, why yeah. now are you now suddenly realizing she's alone with your son when she's been alone yeah. with your son since the day he was born? Yeah. Uh, okay, but in any event, they, the next scene has them busting into the Lowenstein's apartment. Oh, that's their last name. I apologize. I don't think I've mentioned that yet. They find the little boy having his hand burned in hot water by his mom, who's punishing him for making a face. And I have a... Uh, my grandmother on my mom's side used to do that to her, her to my mom and her her siblings. <gasps> my mom has told me many stories that she used to like burn their hands on like a stove oh. or something when they were really bad. So I awful. saw that and I was like, oh, that's it, actually, you know, it probably looked ridiculous, but I'm like, oh, that's that happens, that's you know? Thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yikes. So and she's doing it to him for making like a face. So in this scene, they are, I have to say, like sort of gentle with her and the kid. They handle the situation pretty well for once. You know, they're recognizing she's not well. And rather than treating her like a monster and throwing her on the floor and arresting her like I thought they would, you know, Grievy kind of like just grabs her aside and hugs her and is like, okay, it's okay. And they take the kid away and yada, yada, right? So we're now at the hospital and Logan notices somehow that there's signs in DD of cerebral damage, like deep cerebral damage because she has like involuntary actions. And oh, I yeah. I know how he would have known <laughs> yeah. that suddenly. Logan's a doctor all of a sudden. Yeah, he like, yeah, exactly. I thought they were going to reveal like how he knew that later on. They don't. You know what? I bet like all of those stupid TV shows, not all of them are stupid, but where they have like the psychic person who like joins the cop. I bet those were inspired by Logan. Oh, totally. They were like, you know, remember that scene where he just from nothing, he just deduces her medical injuries. Yeah, that's the Raven was actually this is this. Oh, that's so weird. I was just thinking. I was just thinking about how in the fir- in the scene in the the school where Mrs. Perez and the principal and the cops are all kind of like exchanging weird looks, like it feels so tense. And if I were editing it together, I would throw in that clip of that's so Raven chewing the gum anxiously, like looking around. <laughs> you know, 
It is so funny that you mentioned that because there is a scene in this that comes up that I, I wrote in like how I would have read it, wrote it if it was a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> We're in this, such a same wavelength right now. It's great. Yeah. So now they're in, I guess, a psychiatric facility. They're still in a hospital room. I'm guessing they've gone over to where Carla's being held. Carla's Dee's mom, by the way. They're asking her about her daughter. They're telling her rather about her daughter. Like, you know, she's not doing so great. And she's really more worried about her husband, Jacob, um, and mm-hmm. that he's out there sort of being, he's susceptible to the desiring eyes of others. And he's so hot. Such a hot number. I mean, he's not a bad looking guy, but I, I wouldn't be, you know, chasing him down the street. I wouldn't be yeah. writing home about him. No. <laughs> As I always do. Always write home about the, the hotties. <laughs> so she's sort of like rubbing her like small topiary of red hair on her head. Um, yeah, she's very into playing with her hair. That's like the <laughs> one character direction they gave her for this episode. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be like she's seductive or like feeling her oats. She's very Gia Gunn. <laughs> Well, I think I actually think it's like a weird infantilizing thing or like, oh, like developmental thing, because she's clearly like like there are moments where she acts as like a child. Totally. Yeah. She slips into that like baby voice even. Yeah. The baby voice thing. I kind of thought it was part of that. But that is that is very astute. Oh, thank you. I like that. Okay, you got it. So. Uh, I'll tell you, Logan doesn't see it that way. He sees it as this like sort of like sexual thing, and it oh, yeah. like uh, vain vanity rather, not sexual. So she says, "Oh yeah, he said she's like primping all exactly. the time. Exactly, yeah. like she's always concerned about how she's like looking to them, you know." So she says, "Listen, her and her husband are very much in love. He's the best, and she's like saying the lines very like sedated, almost like not sedated, like rehearsed. Like she's convinced herself of this somehow." And she asks the doctor nearby for more stuff. And then (laughs) she sort of like lies down and falls asleep. When my cousin was in community college, she took a film class and she had to like make a film and they gave everybody a script. And the script that she was given, it was supposed to be like literally like a two minute thing. And hers was, you got the stuff. And then the other person said, I got the stuff. And she had to film it. And so she took this like Easter basket and stuffed it full of random things. Like there was a stuffed chicken hanging out of it and like all of these things. (laughs) You got the stuff. I'll was never it, forget that. What was the stuff supposed to be? Because that sounds like it, it could only be like a reference a to drug like drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why I think she made it so ridiculous and was like, here's a basket with some stuffed animals and like candy. I, I don't know. It was like she found every random thing she could find and stuffed into this ridiculous basket. You got the stuff? Here's you a slinky. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. When I was little, I used to play this game because this is how, this is so sad. I used to play a game of like, Instead of hide and seek, I would hide things around the house and I would try to make someone go find everything I hid. Mm-hmm. And you know what? You want to know what the creative name I came up with for the game? Uh, um, hide and go fuck yourself. <laughs> and then my dad <laughs> sent me to church camp for the next six years. <laughs> no, I said uh, it was titled Hide the Things and Find Them. Oh, uh... it, it was great. The rules are right there. <laughs> I really have always liked to manage people's expectations. <laughs> <laughs> Did people play this game? Uh, you know, not not with not to joy your level of satisfaction. I yeah. mean, not to their level level of satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, I'm gonna bring it back before okay. Davey hears this episode. I'm gonna make him play it. You're just like <laughs> I hid your contacts and your car keys. Go find them. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's perfect. I hit the dog. Go find him. <laughs> Aw. 
Okay, Poor so Neville's just stuck in a cupboard going boo boo. Neville hides himself. <laughs> honestly, True. he's under the covers right now. Well, I like I was about to say, I'm glad there's some levity here because the next scene, in my opinion, has the most troubling statement I've heard uh, made on the show for me. It's Can't one wait. of those moments with Logan and Grievy having this like trope heavy like conversation Debate. where yeah. yeah they're debating a heavy topic that's clearly like dripping all over the episode, and Logan says that the way she was acting like all like coquettish sort of made him want to made him want to puke and yeah. uh grievy thinks that maybe you know she's th- sort of this way because of all the abuse at the hands of her husband which they mentioned like very briefly before this it's not fleshed out at all but they they mentioned like oh she's made a domestic violence or she made a violence accusation against him before but he was out of town it's just weird. Anyway. Right. So Gre- Logan then says, well, you know, there are some women who provoke it. Okay. So pause here because oh, yeah. I think that no. is like such a dangerous thing to say on a TV 100%. show, even yes. if you're trying to like, which I don't think they're doing a great job of, but even if they're trying to say like, obviously you shouldn't hit, hit your spouse, but what a dangerous thing to say. There are some p- women who provoke it from a police oh, yeah. officer's 100%. mouth on TV. Because yeah. of all the people who are going to shake their heads and be like, oh my God, how outrageous. What a, a crazy statement. There are just probably just as many people who are watching it being like, see? Yeah, exactly. I know. Oh, totally. Finally. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like, yeah, someone who's speaking for me. I mean, let's not even get into that. But <sighs> yeah. So there's, again, there is, just to state the obvious, there is no, in no way, shape, form anything no justifiable reason for like a person to put their hands on their spouse for any reason ever and also while we're on this topic there are people in the world that will of course try to provoke violent behavior out of others but we are all ultimately in control of how we react and then however we react regardless of the provocation we are responsible for whatever that reaction is yeah back to the scene Unpause. <laughs> um, <laughs> Grievy has a disgusted look on his face as well. And then Logan finishes out his theory and we're, you know, sort of getting a dive into his past. So they're trying to immediately get us to understand why he feels this way. And he starts talking about his mother and how she's, he sees a parallel between Carla and his mother because his mother was nuts in his, this is his phrasing, his mother was nuts and she was a bottomless pit of despair who only cared about herself and she was ashamed to be married to a cop because she felt like it was beneath her and whenever his father would quote get fed up and give her a whack end quote she'd take it out on um logan as a little kid Um, and for this he somehow blames his mother and Uh not his father um but i mean you know i guess kids process things in different ways but you're now a police officer so I, i assume you've had a psychological evaluation and maybe this might have come up uh okay so in any event he sees the same pattern in carla and he calls her a witch happy halloween (laughs) so back at the station they discover much to their chagrin that cragen released the dad they really had no legal reason to have him there so he released him and they're all pissed and there's like this moment where they're all sort of talking over each other i wrote that they're all just making noises and waving their arms (laughs) like oh no 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 (laughs) um and then the phone rings and it's the peeping tom yeah saved so we're back at his apartment and he says that two nights ago quote mommy dearest was dancing around like a whirling dervish (laughs) Because everybody talks like that. <laughs> yeah. Mommy, Dear- Mommy Dearest, which is a movie I love. I had to look up Whirling Dervish because I'm dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I 
didn't really know what it was. So um, he also says he was sh- uh, she was he saw her shaking Dee Dee like a rag doll, and mm-hmm. the husband got home sometime after eleven, and then he uh, belted Carla, who then hit the kid. And Logan feels like really validated because this is exactly what he said he's, his mother would do. Rudy also discloses that he saw her getting out of a cab that same day with her son. And they are freaking out because they thought she was still in Bellevue in custody. So mm-hmm. they like dart out of the hotel, the apartment building and there's this dramatic like 90s Muzak. And mm-hmm. they're, they're on the hunt for Carla. They bust into her apartment and they find her, her son, who is, I think his name is Ezra. He's hiding in like a cardboard fort like whimpering she is sitting down she's got bruises on her face it looks like she's she's clearly been through some sort of ordeal and grievy goes over to her jacob appears from like another room he like flies off the handle and he goes to punch her and so he's like you stupid cow (laughs) um and as they're being walked out she says in that like fucked up baby voice daddy don't be scared pookie pookie doesn't want to go to jail Adults doing baby voice is possibly the worst thing that exists in the world. There's I, never it makes a reason. Me, no, it makes me so uncomfortable. Who who would ever want to be on the tail end of a baby voice from an adult? I don't know. And have you you've watched Thirty Rock, right? Uh, you ask. I think you asked me this every episode. I've every seen episode. the first two seasons. Okay, please <laughs> add it back to your list. I know. There's I an, loved it. I just yeah. So there's an episode where there's a woman comic who does a baby voice, and it's like her her shtick, oh. and it's like this whole ongoing conflict with her and Liz because it makes Liz really uncomfortable. <laughs> oh my god, I love that! I love Thirty Rock. I just it's I don't know. so funny. It's a it's a big endeavor. <laughs> it is. There's a lot of it. Yeah, we switch over now to like the order part of the episode, right? So <laughs> we're in court, and Carla's defense attorney, who is legal aide Shambhala Green. Who mm-hmm. is a character we see throughout the rest of the Law and Order series? Yes, she's talking with I. I guess I think she's talking to Robinette in this scene. Oh no, she's talking to Detect uh, ADA Stone. I apologize. Let me fast forward. I accept your apology. <laughs> Thank you so much. She is uh, claiming that that Carla needs medical attention. That she's not well, and ADA Stone says that the infirmary in jail will do just just fine and then we have a really quick scene which is strange that this is a quick scene because it's about 15 seconds long where we find out that dd has passed away in the hospital yeah they just kind of like gloss over it yep it's like oh okay she's she's it's over and then we're immediately back at bellevue where um robinette has to break the news to carla a grieving mother she is not she asks how her baby is and to the gross dismay of all of us, including the two of them in the room, she's meaning her husband. Yeah. If I if I ever refer to Davy as my baby, where's my baby? Can you attack me? N- yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh my god, my baby, maybe the dingo ate your baby. <laughs> <laughs> my baby is reserved for Neville and like any other dog we get. That's not my. Well, and it's worse when you say it in the baby voice. If you were just like, my baby, and you were referring to an actual baby or a dog, that's fine. Right. But when you're... Oh, God, yuck. How's my baby? So, anyway, she she says that since Dee Dee is gone, I guess it's resolved. Her defense attorney... She literally says the phrase, I think it's... Or it's resolved. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, um, okay. And then her defense attorney's in there, too. So it's Robinette, it's... uh, green and it's carla and they're like um 
do you realize how serious this is? And Carla sort of asserts herself for the first time that she's aware. And she's like, I know I'm being accused of murdering my child, but nobody hit her. And Robinette is like pushing her. And I know he's like sort of trying to aid her because she's clearly got communication uh, deficit here. Yeah. But he's kind of like leading her, which is kind of, and it goes great. Yeah. He's like, did you throw her? Did you throw her? Who did it? Did he? And then, and then what happened? You stumped on her face? Like he, he yeah. very much fills in the. It's very much that like cops taking advantage of a person whose like mental faculties aren't all there and filling in the blanks for themselves. Yeah, and like relying on false memory and impl- mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's not great, but it, it doesn't really. Uh, shake off, shake up, <laughs> shake up, shake, shake it up, Taylor Swift. Shake it off. Anyway, it doesn't really shake out anything, and he's sort of shocked because he says she then says that Jacob believes that healing is a matter of adjusting your mind to God's will, and that he picked Dee Dee up, laid his hands on it to address it, and made it better. And the mm-hmm. two attorneys get like real quiet and look at each other, um, and they're like, okay, and they kind of realize <laughs> what they're dealing with. So Robinette in the next scene is busting into a uh, room with a medical examiner, I, I assume, and he's like, did you assess Dee Dee's body for signs of sexual assault? And it's this very take charge moment where he's like you better (laughs) and i was like oh okay robinette (laughs) so we're in the judge's chambers soon after and stone is joined by both of the two parents attorneys we have carla's attorney green who believes that she's innocent based on all the trauma she went through at the hands of her husband Mm -hmm. we have his defense attorney who believes that women are garbage Mm -hmm. and we have that oh and he thinks you know his client never hit dd and there's really no case here let's just move on And Stone then delivers a heartfelt monologue about the lives of children, and he believes that the only way that they're ever going to get to the truth in this case is to turn one on the other. When you said he delivers a heartfelt monologue about children, and then he said he believes the children are the future. future. (laughs) I really missed an opportunity there. (laughs) So we have uh, this really... I, I've never seen this. A courtroom with three tables. Oh, yeah. That was weird. Right? I don't know. I know they're trying them separately, but I, I just I, I just thought one would kind of wait. <laughs> and then, yeah. they, anyway. So they're all in there, and they're going to try them both together for the separate convictions. And it's increasingly clear right away that Carla is unnaturally obsessed with Jacob to the point where the judge has to intervene from her, like, saying, baby, from, like, across yeah. the little table. And then the trial begins, and we have Ms. Perez back in the fold. And she reveals on the stand that Stone, to Stone that she saw Carla be aggressive to Dee Dee before, like sort of moderately aggressive. And she's yeah. also seen like evidence of far worse because she's seen bruising on her legs, a black eye, burned hands. We know that's Carla's move too. The reason that all of these ab- signs of abuse were on her, according to Dee Dee at the time, was that she hadn't finished her dinner. And so, you know, again, we see some severe overreaction. Mm -hmm. And on her way out of the courtroom, she serves up one final severe moment calling Carla, bitch. Yeah. (laughs) She's walking out. And I would like to believe, I'm choosing to believe that this was not scripted. (laughs) Like, she just made a character choice and they went with it. So Stone is now in a a scene with D.A. Schiff, and he's wondering, why are you conflicted, Stone? Like, things are going well. Your witness just did great. But Stone senses the obvious to all of us that there's something else going on here. Carla is not well and clearly should not be someone that's being... It's it's ridiculous. Something's wrong. Something is going on. And he thinks that Jacob is depraved, he says. And Schiff wants to know, like, what is it about the defendant? And Schiff says that, 
I'm sorry. And uh, Stone says that it's his own rage. And they kind of talk about it a little bit. And we see that they come up with a new approach, which is to get to him through her. So her defense meets with the DA's team and they try to agree on a plea. And then Carla interrupts by saying sort of blank face that she did it. And her attorney interjects and um, says that he got her high on coke, beat her, and encouraged her to hit Dee Dee, which Carla then says that the purpose of it was to, quote, to train her for later so that they can both serve him. Yeah. So she will testify, she says. And then Stone, <laughs> literally at um, that moment in the courtroom, everybody is making the face that Chrissy Teigen makes in that gif. <laughs> oh yes Ooh. yes when she reveals yeah. it oh my god that like oh <laughs> that is like such a face i love that face so much so she'll testify and then stone agrees um okay then we'll plead down to man one but we're gonna go after him for murder and then we hear a creaky swing set <laughs> off camera which just turns out to be carla crying <laughs> <laughs> so we're back in court and the me that we saw before says that there was indeed ex- evidence of sexual assault and that the fatal blow seemed to have occurred between 10 and 11. Now, Carla is then brought to the witness stand, to the witness box, and she says when she's being questioned that she didn't think she had any strength left, but she did hit Dee Dee, and it was her husband who told her to do so. And uh, he he jumps up in the courtroom, you're out of your mind! <laughs> <laughs> and the judge settles, settles them down. And it's kind of like, I mean, if you're on trial for murder, maybe, but this is like a classic law and order thing that happens throughout the whole series, oh, yeah. you know, like just let's, let's agitate the person on the stand and get him to confess. Basically, he told her that Dee Dee was being trained by her basically to be the perfect wife, just like her. And she's then asked if he ever sexually abused Dee Dee. And she says, well, it wasn't exactly abuse. And he loved her. He just had to Again, find a way of showing everyone it. is making that Chrissy Teigen face. <laughs> Yeah, this is like everyone is just like, oh, I I even see like in the scene some of the jurors like leaning forward. Yeah. <laughs> like, am I here? Yeah. Um, really creepy. Really well well this is the part of the episode I liked, like all of the courtroom stuff. I just thought it was like really tense. Yes. So the defense approaches and tries to discredit her and they ask her, like, how often were you loaded? How much coke did you do? How often do you do coke? And they kind of try to make her feel like her kids preferred their dad over her like oh why do you why do the kids want to walk and hold his hand instead of yours and all this stuff and she's she's getting sort of thrown off you know now we're in the da's office and carla's defense busts in and says okay you guys need to get it together okay (laughs) because we accepted a plea we're done okay she testified you need to get him and if you want to do it you got to go for it after his finances because he's a coke dealer and she's telling this to them because, you know, they had their day in court and they both know that he made her do this. He made her this way. And I was just like, oh, I love this. I love this moment. I'm like, get to the courtroom and drag him already. I am ready. <laughs> Take it to court. Drag me, Monique. Order in the court. <laughs> drag me. Like, you want me to? So they, uh, they get his client on the stand and he says that. Oh, no, they get, not his client, they get the uh, Jacob's client on the stand, one of his, one of his patients, let's say. And she says that she would smoke crack with Dr. Jacob <laughs> Lowenstein in order to get closer to her inner child. Mm-hmm. You know, just very reiki in ways. <sighs> I mean, yikes. Yeah. I don't think Definitely. cocaine is used in the reiki in uh, practice. No. Yeah, so she says, again, that this is uh, just 
you know, this is what he does. This is the practice. It's normal. And Stone presses on her further and is like, listen, you're buying cocaine from him, correct? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, and your friends do too? And she's like, <laughs> yeah. And now we have Jacob finally taking the stand. And his attorney is like trying to paint him as a loving father, leading him down that path in front of everybody that he's never hit Dee Dee. He's only protected her from irrational Carla. And he's only here because of like legal semantics it's it's just a matter of like you know they have to they have to bring him in so stone gets jacob to admit when he's cross-examining him that he has been illegally selling drugs to his patients and he doesn't have a license to prescribe medicine and he's done this to his wife as well and stone is really agitated he's incredibly passionate about this issue in a way we've not seen him before and he says it's legal semantics but some people happen to think they're very important and I like that because, uh, yeah, sometimes it, they are important. Yeah. It's not just semantics. There's a reason for many of the laws that exist. Not all of them. So he starts digging into his relationship with Dee Dee, and the defendant says that they were very close. She loved him very much. She doted on him even, and she would hold his hand. And Stone mentions, like, yeah, didn't you say that Carla would walk behind you guys? And he's like, yeah, he would say, she would say, hold my hand tighter, daddy. Stone reveals this is a clear sign of an abused child trying to gain favor with their abusing parent. I had never heard of that I before. I had neither. I thought that was really interesting, though. Like, I totally, yeah, I thought that was really yeah, interesting. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so anyway, he says he's got, like, one more question, which turns into sort of, like, a line of questions. But he says, when you got home after, you know, midnight that night, and you say that your daughter had been hit by Carla before you got home, when you got home and you saw your daughter in her school clothes lying on the living room floor asleep, why would you not check on her, being that she's lying uncovered on the living room floor after midnight with a blood stain under her head almost 30 inches in circumference? And he says, uh, it was dark. And he goes, okay, uh, so it was dark. So the next day, did you call 911? Did you call a doctor? Or did you leave your daughter bleeding out? Uh, the latter yeah. of the two. So, I mean, let's we should have just got right to that right from the beginning. So, sentencing is happening right away, and Carla is sentenced to seven to ten years with her plea deal in a women's facility for a man one. And for him, the judge says that he is beyond contempt, and he's found guilty of murder in the second degree, and he's sentenced to 25 to life. And as they're led away in handcuffs together, Carla says to him, like, what are they going to do when they're separated? Pookie needs her daddy. Oh, oh, God, I just barfed. Oh, God, it left everywhere. Yeah, I wrote we all end this episode feeling that little bit of vomit building in the pit of our stomachs. (laughs) And that's the end of the episode, Indifference. Yeah, good job. Thank you. I think the reason I said I don't like this episode was because of how uncomfortable it was and how dark it was. and, And the baby talk is just really difficult to watch. A friend of mine back in the day, we used to say that one of the things that you want to get someone pissed off, if you want to piss off one of your friends or someone you're having like a minor Ugh. argument with, easiest way is just to mimic them in a, in baby, a baby voice. voice. Just a few of their words. Oh my God. Instant <laughs> fury. Or in like a really ridiculous high-pitched Mrs. Doubtfire British accent. <laughs> well, it's very much that scene from Bridesmaids. Oh, you do. <laughs> oh, Ellen knows the owner. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm so ready. So this is the story of the murder of Lisa Steinberg. And this was actually New York's first ever televised murder trial. Wow. I know, right? 
So my I got information from a lot of different sources. Uh, the Florida International University College of Education's website on child abuse, um, of course, Wikipedia, uh, the University of Virginia School of Law Archives, an Associated Press article by Rick Hampson, a Entertainment Weekly article by Catherine Stimson, a Vanity Fair article by Joyce Johnson and Maury Terry, a New York Times Magazine article by Francine Russo, Murderpedia, and an article in Slate, which I forgot to write down who writes it, but I would be surprised if there were multiple. So <laughs> Very good. We will keep going. All right. So the character of the husband on the Law & Order episode is based on a man named Joel Steinberg, who was born in 1941 and was raised in the Bronx and Yonkers, New York. And he graduated from Fordham University in 1962 went into the Air Force, and then returned after spending some time in the Air Force to go to law school. And contrary to sort of how he's portrayed on the show, he was a like big muscular guy with kind of like a tough guy image, according to the, the articles that I read. Yeah, very different. Yeah. So in 1975, he met a woman named, and this is where I think you might start. So you definitely know this case, by the way. Okay. Um, I, he met a woman named Hedda Nussbaum. Does that ring any bells? It does. Okay. Particularly the last name, actually. Okay. So she was an editor and an author of children's books at Random House Publishers. And the Vanity Fair article, they have a quote about her that I just want to read. And they said, talk to those who knew Hedda Nussbaum during the eight years she worked as an editor in the juvenile department at Random House. And you hear the following adjectives over and over. Warm, sensitive, gentle, kind. I would have said she had it all, one former colleague says ruefully. Intelligence, talent, looks. On one thing, everyone agrees. Hedda's striking physical attractiveness. She made heads turn when she showed up in the office for the first time in the fall of 1974. One of the older women thought to herself, oh boy, what a good-looking person this is. She carried herself like a dancer. I thought she looked like Faye Dunaway, only with darker hair. So she's kind of this, like, electric, magnifying, magnifying, magnetic. magnetic. <laughs> <laughs> she's a magnifying glass. She's an electric magnifying glass. She is an electric magnifying glass. <laughs> okay. So they met in 1975, and within a year, they are living together in a brownstone apartment in Greenwich Village. Is that how you say uh, is that how you say it? Greenwich? Even yes. Though it's Greenwich? Okay. Yes. So unlike in the show where he was a psychologist, uh, Joel Steinberg was a defense attorney who at sometimes handled adoption cases. Her meeting Joel Steinberg is kind of when Hedda's life took a turn for the worse. Uh, the Vanity Fair article says that she set about reshaping herself in accordance with his wishes. Joel liked his women thin, so Hedda lost a little bit too much weight. Perhaps as a result, a direct result of Steinberg's coaching, her office personality also changed. She spoke up much more in meetings, became quite insistent and aggressive in demanding an increase in salary, as well as a promotion to senior editor. So people are seeing her behavior and her appearance and all of that take a really severe turn. Interesting. I mean, is that, ba is that bad? I mean, is that bad that she's sort of like asking for things for herself i think it's part to say she's acting out of character but also some of the implications that we get are that stein joel like kind of pushed her to like demand money and demand a promotion and things oh, like that because he wanted a certain lifestyle kind of thing right so, it wasn't like of her own volition like correct. i think i deserve these things it was like i this is the expectation and i have to like kind of do this in order to keep him 
Exactly. Got yes. it. Okay, that makes sense. During this period of time, neighbors said they reported hearing sounds of domestic violence, screaming, cursing, crying, slamming of doors, and they called the police many times. And that I couldn't really find anything about those other calls, unfortunately. Mm. Co-workers of Hedda Nussbaum said that she started to become increasingly erratic. She was absent from work a lot. She would show up with facial bruises and sunglasses and makeup that uh, to kind of hide bruising, but it you know, wasn't convincing. Uh And she lost even more weight and her hair turned prematurely gray. And in 1982, as a result of her sort of erratic attendance and and behavior, she was fired from her job. And during, (laughs) during all of this, I hate that. I'm sorry. (laughs) I keep interrupting uh, you. I just think it's so sad to like, yes, (sighs) she was this like magnet. She was an electric magnifying glass. She was an electric magnifying glass. And now she's been like, demoted to one of those things that just lays on the counter and you just lazily put it over your reader's digest to read a little bit more magnified like that prism that you just slide over the paper yeah things bigger yeah like it might as well just be a paperweight yeah she used to be electric yeah so during all of this by the way joel is described as a really inept lawyer and so there's people who are like i don't even know how he got the cases he did and so there were some kind of like scuttlebutt, unverifiable rumors that maybe he was a lawyer for the mob, but that was all speculation. But one of his clients who did end up firing him said that he caught Steinberg uh, stealing rent checks from other subtenants in the office. Oh, delightful. Yeah. So he's a gem. Treat. When people would, during these years, when people would try to reach Hedda, Joel would supervise her conversations either by listening on the other line or by like literally hanging over her as she talked on the phone. So she really wasn't allowed to have any control or privacy or individual, you know, time, things like that. And even Hedda's sister was quoted as saying that he kept controlling her. He needed to have complete mind control over her. She would always deny it. She would say, he loves me. And Vanity Fair says that she remained with him after she nearly, even after she nearly lost an eye and was hospitalized with injuries to her pelvis and a ruptured spleen. Oh my God. I can't imagine how hard you would have to, like, how you could rupture, the the amount of impact required to rupture somebody's internal organs must be fucking gnarly. Honestly, and she... It's said that she's become like very frail, very thin, yes, and yes. she's probably very delicate. She's probably not taking yes. care of herself anymore. No. I just want to note, this is my own sort of uh, editorializing, that I think it's important to remember in this whole story, in the episode of Law and & Order, and in this actual story, that it's really difficult for people to leave an abusive relationship, and that we cannot shame people who cannot leave one or do not leave one. But we should instead focus on reducing factors that contribute and allow domestic violence to happen. Right. And and, and continue to try to fund uh, programs and resources yes. for people to have Leave them. the yeah. chance to, yes. to get out. Because that's often one of the reasons is, yes. is where will I go? Exactly. The economic insecurity is definitely a large contributing factor to why people stay in abusive relationships. So in 1981, so some of the reports say that uh, Nussbaum had a, uh, I I don't know why I keep going back and forth. I'm just going to say Nussbaum because that's, I think, how I wrote it most of the time. (laughs) Okay. So she, according to some reports, like talked to him about wanting a baby. She couldn't get pregnant. And I think that some of the articles like theorize that she's wanted a child to like maybe 
fix whatever was going wrong in their relationship, which, by the way, babies are never a answer to problems in a relationship. But... Oh, my God. <laughs> Who? I don't even understand. You know what's a great way to make my really challenging, hard relationship better? Let's introduce another living thing into the house that right. can't communicate with us at all, and we're going to raise it together. Let's make both of our lives even instantaneously more difficult, more difficult with yeah. no solution and then let's yeah. also add some uh, huge financial suck suck yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure that people love children there are great reasons to have them yeah but, i usually yeah. i usually give this speech at um gender reveal parties <laughs> <laughs> okay so in uh 1981 they under dubious legal circumstances, uh, Nussbaum and Steinberg took custody of an infant girl named Lisa. Uh, the girl's birth mother had apparently paid Steinberg a $500 legal fee to place the child with a Roman Catholic family, because apparently she was Catholic. And Nussbaum, or sorry, Steinberg took the money and it was like, sure, great. Took the money, took the baby, and then just kept it instead. Huh. Under similar circum- circumstances, under similar circumstances, uh, Nussbaum and Steinberg also took in a toddler that they named Mitchell, and they never legally adopted either child. So at 6.35 a.m. on Monday, November 2nd, 1987, Hedda called the—look there, I switched again. Hedda called the police to report that her daughter had choked on food. And when the police arrived, they saw that Hedda had a bruised leg and a swollen face, a split lip— and an inflamed leg that left untreated would have actually killed her. So she was in really rough shape when the police arrived. Jeez. They found six-year-old Lisa naked and emaciated, unable to breathe, unconscious, and covered with bruises. Oh, God. In order to explain the bruises on Lisa's body, Hedda claimed that she had fallen a lot lately on her roller skates. Okay. I've oh, fallen way, a lot on roller skates in my life. A lot. Oof. And, uh... Not not quite the same injuries. No. no. By the way, the police described their house as like a cave. Like there was very, like it was very dark there. It was really messy. They found Lisa's 16-month-old brother, Mitchell, chained up and lying in his own feces in a playpen. And he was alive, but he was like confined to that playpen. And uh, How old was he again, you said? 16 months. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, The house, as I said, was really uh, messy and contained large quantities of cocaine and other drugs, as well as $25,000 in cash. Same. And and also, this is just a note. The sink was ripped from the wall. Which oh, minor, minor, like, minor uh, details. Yeah, minor know, little details. cosmetic things. Yeah, like, oh, we'll get around to that. Yeah. At the hospitals, the doctors were able to, through, like, kind of looking at Lisa's injuries, they were able to see that this had actually been a result of a long history of abuse because, you know, there were there were bruises of different, like, levels of healing. Like, it wasn't, oh, she fell. It was a sustained period of injury. Mm-hmm. And the, that examination resulted in Steinberg and Nussbaum being charged with attempted murder. On November 5th, so this is just three days later— it became clear to doctors that Lisa would not rec- she was in a coma and it became that she became clear that she would never recover uh. due to an acute subdural hematoma and so her life support was removed and she passed away and the charges f- against Steinberg and Nussbaum were subsequently changed to murder however in New York state at that time first degree murder applied only to those who killed police officers or had committed murder while 
already serving a sentence for a previous murder. So, like, what you could only have murder one if you killed a police officer or you were on parole for a murder sentence. Well, I'm glad that's changed. Yeah. In the course of the investigation, it was discovered that Steinberg had been under the influence of crack cocaine when he hit Lisa on the head on November 1st. And apparently he, like, hit her on the head. Uh, Okay, so this was covered on an episode of My Favorite Murder, and I remember Karen talking about how, like, maybe Lisa wanted to, like, go with him or didn't want him to leave or something, and he, like, became enraged and hit her. But I couldn't, I really could not find anything in, like, news articles that indicated why he hit her at that time. Like, in that specific instance, of course, why he hit her is because he's an abuser. But I didn't know the other circumstances of this specific attack. Yeah, like, what Um, was his reasoning for it? Yeah, exactly. What was his reasoning for it? So, anyway, so he went out, uh, he, like, hit her on the head and then, like, left to go party. And then would come back several times that evening. Uh, and according to the newspaper, he would come back and sometimes freebase free base cocaine and then go back out. I honestly don't know what freebasing means. But... I don't either. I think it's like a, <laughs> uh, I want to say freebasing is like when you like melt it down and you're like inhaling the vapors of it. I don't, I, know. I don't know. I really don't know what freebasing is. Maybe it's like a... Isn't it, maybe it's like base jumping. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's when... Uh, maybe it's like I, bungee jumping. Yeah, maybe it's like when you're in a band and, uh, you know, the person who's on bass, just like all the strings break on the bass. Yeah. And then that's called free bass. And then you snort a bunch of cocaine and uh, you just do the song anyway. Yeah. And then you throw the the bass guitar into the audience and whoever gets hit, they got (laughs) And you crowd surf. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) So uh, it was determined that the cause of her death was a head injury, apparently inflicted by a rubber hammer. So like a, a mallet. Oh, okay. After the attack, um, as I said, he left to just go party with friends, and Nussbaum was alone in the apartment with the unconscious and bleeding Lisa for 10 hours without seeking any medical attention for her. Oh my god. But she eventually dialed 911, and that's when the police arrived. So... In exchange for testifying against Steinberg, Nussbaum was uh, not prosecuted for events related to Lisa's death, even though New York law stated that if one parent beats a child and the other stays silent about it, each was equally guilty. But she was not prosecuted due to the belief that her years of abuse from Steinberg had essentially rendered her incompetent at the time of the murder. Okay. So instead, she was sent to a psychiatric hospital, and Joel was charged with first-degree manslaughter. He mm. went to trial, and it was a 12-week trial, during which his defense argued—this is so gross—his defense argued that Nussbaum's injuries, so his wife's injuries, resulted from a consensual sadomasochistic relationship between the two of them. Oh, God. Yeah. They always friggin' do this. Like, yes. this happens so friggin' much more than I expected to, to yeah. every time you hear about true crime. Like, that's, like, the easiest thing to do is, yeah. oh, she no, liked, she she liked it that. rough. Yeah. She yeah. asked for it, and then it just got too much for her. Yeah. So her lawyers said that she was a victim of domestic violence and displayed signs of battered woman syndrome. And that's kind of why she was going along with things and didn't call the police and all of that. And I think I'm going to touch on this later, but... Uh, she also sort of believed that Nuss, uh, that uh, Steinberg had kind of like healing powers, 
And so that he, you know, Lisa was like unconscious and bleeding, but through, I guess, some sense of delusion as a result of the abuse, believed that he would be able to heal her. Then there, so I want to read this quote from the Slate article. And while there is no doubt that Steinberg became a much despised villain, the media's collective attention focused unstingingly on Hedda. It was one thing for a madman to harm a child. Violence by men, one could convincingly argue, is expected. But for a mother to stand by while it happened, that is something else. How could any mother, asked to the cover of People magazine, no matter how battered, fail to help her dying child? And one was one reporter was quoted as saying, when she testified that she did nothing, when she discovered Lisa was sexually abused, she lost us. Up until then, I felt sorry for her. So this is... These quotes, I, I read them because there is a, there was a lot of debate and there still is a lot of debate about her kind of like culpability or responsibility in this matter. And yeah. to this day, people still like vehemently disagree on that. But I read that also because this reporter is saying like we were sympathetic for her until we discovered that Lisa was sexually abused. That's literally the only article I could find that talked about that. I couldn't find anything else that referenced that. But I also remember My Favorite Murder talking about that in their episode. And so it's possible that there was an article that I, I didn't come across. Hmm. And I mean, it was included in the episode. So I, I wonder know. if there was yeah. some sort of. Yeah. Yeah. OK, this is possibly the worst part of it. It's all terrible, so I shouldn't wow. say that. Okay. During the trial, medical experts testified that while Lisa's injuries were severe, she would have almost certainly survived if she had been given prompt medical treatment. So if she had not waited for 10 hours to call the police, she probably would still be alive. Disgusting. Yeah. The jury was unable to convict Steinberg on the charge of second-degree murder, but did convict him of first-degree manslaughter. And the judge at that time sentenced him to a maximum penalty available for that charge, which was eight and a third years to 25 years in state prison. And I forgot to note how long of a period of time he served, but he did serve his time and he has been released. And he moved to Harlem and works in construction and continues to maintain his innocence in the matter. Of course. Right. In the years following Lisa's death, Hedda Nussbaum worked to rebuild her life and had r numerous reconstructive plastic surgeries. Because you can, you can Google pictures and see her face at the time of all of this. And she's clearly been really really badly assaulted because like her nose has been broken and all of that so there's actually a, a quote that says her nose and you know what i'm not going to read this because actually I, I think it's unkind to her but people did emphasize that like she was permanently the way she looked was permanently changed and required multiple reconstructive surgeries to kind of return her face to any sense <laughs> i don't want to say any sense of normalcy but to, well, to... any sense of the, of the of the woman she wants to resemble. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, despite the fact that there's a lot of debate about her culpability in the matter, I from my interpretation of her life after the events, these events, it appears to me that she tried to uh have a positive impact on survivors of assault going forward. So she co-facilitated support groups for battered women for eight years and later worked as a paralegal for an organization that assists battered women. And uh, in 1995, she started giving lectures about abuse at colleges and shelters for uh, survivors of, of abuse. 
And she did all of that up until the point where Steinberg was released from prison, when she kind of like receded from public attention, and then later published a book. So supporters, this is kind of a a direct quote, supporters characterized Nussbaum as a victim of horrific domestic violence at the hands of her partner, Joel Steinberg, where critics suggested she was a consensual partner and an unprosecuted co-conspirator in Lisa Steinberg's death. And so I just want to end her this story with a quote that I think is from her 2005 book, and it's called uh, Surviving Intimate Terrorism. And it's a letter that she wrote to Lisa a year after her death as part of her psychiatric treatment. So she writes, How can I say I'm sorry, Lisa? If only I could undo what is done, but I cannot. If only I could be at 14 West 10th Street with today's mind and turn back time, then I would see you, I would hear, I would speak, I would save you. And that's the story of the murder of Lisa Steinberg. Wow, that is a lot. It's this, like I said, I think the reason I didn't like watching this episode was because it, I mean, none of them are like, (laughs) oh, this crime is super like upbeat and lighthearted. But, (laughs) you know, child abuse and, and the murder of a child and the kind of destruction of this woman's life is really difficult to watch. The little brother Mitchell was eventually reunited with his uh, birth mother, and she renamed him, and I think they're just kind of, like, living Normal. a life where they're, like, not connected to any of this at this point. So I think, I think and I hope that he is having a wonderful life. Yeah, me too. I mean, what an ordeal. I, I, I totally forgot about the other kid. Yeah. Well, great job on that one. Thank you. I mean, that was not, I don't envy you for having to go over that case. Um, Yeah. I think we're going to have a lot of really ugly cases. uh, Yeah, exactly. I think we're starting to understand like the idea of covering true crime is, like we've said before, I totally get why it's hard to sort of wrap up the episodes that we do because it's like oh yeah we just talked about this horrific crime and it's like okay well enjoy the rest of your day everybody yeah (laughs) if you're reading if you're listening before bed sweet dreams yeah oh i did have something i wanted to bring up from a previous episode i forgot to tell you okay um i forget was it poison ivy or was it by a girl by crook huh maybe i think it was poison ivy it had to be yeah the you mentioned somewhere in the episode uh when i was covering the crime Mm -hmm. that or no when you were covering the episode you mentioned that it was like the bad music video yes oh god yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, the michael jackson bad music video and i was like oh more on that later and i never told you yes um there is a lot of declarative evidence to say that that case um of edmund perry Uh uh-huh inspired the bad music video Shut up. Yeah, like totally Weird. random coincidence that you that you brought that up. But um let's see, I actually have a little quote here. I think it's like stolen right from Wikipedia. Um <laughs> favorite thing to do. I Not know. you, just me also. But. Right. It says, um various Michael Jackson bio biograph biographers, wow, biographers, I was gonna say. <laughs> so various Michael Jackson biographers have concluded that his nineteen eighty seven song Bad and its music video were inspired by Edmund Perry. In the music video, Michael's character is peer pressured by his friends when he returns home from his honors high school and rebuffs his bullies by singing the song. This wow. reflects the main lyrical theme of anti bullying and standing up for oneself. 
damn right I had no idea yeah so it's i mean kind i guess of like, i was like literally four years old when that song came out but still i mean that song it's like a huge song and the video is huge you think that you know it's just a it's just like a pop-up video factoid yeah. you think you would have heard right but yeah. really interesting that it, it was funny because I think the reason you said it was just because of something ridiculous in the episode. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> like did. Was, and then, yeah, yeah. Oh, funny. Well, thanks for sharing. Yeah. I'm glad I remembered. Listeners, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Ripped Headlines. You can email us at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. And um, please, 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 please go and subscribe and rate us and tell your friends to do the same thing. That would be awesome. Yes. Please, please, please. And look out for our new episodes every Thursday. Yep. We'll see you next week. All right. Bye. Bye.